Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Money with Katie podcast. Today, by popular demand, I'm going to be taking you through the top five basics that I would say all beginners should know. So this episode was inspired by the idea that I totally understand that some of you coming to my blog or my Instagram or this podcast may be starting from literal square one, and it could be a little bit overwhelming if the first thing that you stumble into is some super intense granular tax strategy post, it could feel totally overwhelming. So I love the DMs that I get on Instagram because they really do provide such a wonderful insight about what the people who are reading my work give a shit about. So one DM that I received recently made me laugh out loud. She said, "Um, I'm 22 and none of what you talk about makes any sense to me. And I'm intrigued and terrified, and I feel like I need to know more. So in that moment, I was like, you know what? I, I Where do I even start? Like, where would I tell somebody to start? So I know that there really isn't any, I don't know, boiled down one-stop shop for someone to necessarily use as a starting point, so to speak. So I decided it was time to create one. All right, so... I'm going to try to wrap up relatively succinctly this like dreaded listicle format of uh, <laughs> of the top five things that I would focus on. So you can use this as a jumping off point. I'll link some other resources in the show notes. That way you can start here, but then take it a step further. So if you you know, buy into my philosophy about personal finance, um, your priorities should have a little bit of strategy baked in. So that's really what we're focusing on today. And uh, if you are just starting out and you don't want to dive in with both feet, you could always save this episode, bookmark it, come back to it later, and then go through piece by piece. I promise it'll be fun. You'll be just fine. Okay, so number one, the very first Thing that I think anyone and everyone should start with is that if you have debt, you need to be paying it off strategically and give yourself more credit than the Dave Ramsey snowball method. There is nothing wrong with Dave Ramsey. Well, maybe there is, but that's not what today's episode is about. One of the biggest mistakes I see, though, is people prioritizing the wrong kind of debt. So I use mistake non-judgmentally. I, uh, I don't want you to be hard on yourself. Obviously, unless someone told you this, there would be literally no way for you to know any better. But you always want to use the interest rate to determine whether or not you're better off paying your debt quickly or investing aggressively instead. So the snowball method is a popular debt payoff strategy, and it tells you to focus on the debt with the lowest balance first. So for example, maybe you have $5,000 of credit card debt and $2,000 of student loan debt. The snowball method would tell you to focus on the $2,000 of student loan debt. But ultimately, your student loan debt probably has an interest rate of 5% or less, and that credit card debt probably has an interest rate of 18% or more. So you're focusing your energy on the debt that's growing more slowly, while the debt that's growing faster is compounding in the background. 
It's just an inefficient way to do it. And I think efficiency is key when it comes to things that can feel as demoralizing as debt payoff. So the magic number here is roughly about 6%. If you have a debt with an interest rate that's 6% or lower, I would probably just make the minimum payments and then invest anything extra that comes your way. So rather than putting more money toward the debt and, you know, obviously just spending that extra income is not the same thing. I'm not giving you permission to make minimum payments and then blow the rest of it. But if your interest rate is higher than 7%, 6%-ish, then you probably should be making extra payments and in putting investing more so on the back burner. I will say the only caveat there is that if you get a 401k match through your employer, you definitely want to be contributing up to the match. So even if you're in debt, right? Even if you have high interest debt, why is that? Because this interest rate trick, what we're using here to determine which debt we're going to focus on, if at all, sometimes if the rate is low enough, you're not going to focus on it. You're just going to make the minimums and move on with your life. But we're really just trying to see where our money goes the furthest. In other words, where are you going to get the best return on that money? If you're paying off debt that has an 18% interest rate, the return on making an extra payment is 18%. It's the savings of the interest that you would have paid on that debt. It's going to be kind of difficult to get a higher return than that in the stock market with any level of predictability. Whereas if your interest rate is 2%, then the return on investment of paying that debt down faster is a savings of 2%, right? But if you were to put that extra money in the stock market instead of paying it down faster, you're probably going to average 7 to 8% returns over time. Maybe higher, maybe lower. There's obviously no guarantee, but we're using history as a basis for determining what makes the most sense. The reason the 401k match is definitely worth it is because any money that you put into that 401k up to the match gets a 100% return. It's hard to do much better than a 100% return on your money. And it's going to be worth it, especially down the line when you have many years of compounding working in your favor. So that's just a quick, brief overview of how I think about debt. Let's move on to number two. Your first priority beyond debt should be saving an emergency fund. An emergency fund is what I effectively refer to as the oh shit fund. And if money makes you uncomfortable and is a source of low self-esteem for you, creating this fund will change that. Just knowing that you have the money in the bank to get yourself out of bad situations can give you a lot of confidence. Don't underestimate the value of that. So your emergency fund is what you fall back on when things hit the fan so you don't have to move back in with your parents and work at your dad's law firm, like unless you want to, obviously. It provides freedom and autonomy even when things are not going your way. So maybe we should start calling it a freedom fund. That kind of feels more fun. But one of the big questions that I get all the time is, where should I start building an emergency fund? Okay, so when we start talking about the where of an emergency fund, I have a few relatively hot takes on the topic. 
I have a theory that some people have more in their emergency funds than they actually need and that the high yield savings account is a little bit of a trick to the extent that it makes you feel like your money is doing more than it actually is, especially when the interest rate is 0.5% per year. So I always recommend having enough in cash that you could pay for all your bills for the next mm, six-ish weeks and then having your And by cash, I mean in just a regular savings account. I wouldn't even dick around with the high yield thing. Like I said, you're really not going to get much for it anyway. So just keep it in in savings connected to your checking account, assuming you don't have any uh, self-discipline issues with moving the money out when you shouldn't be. But you just want enough in cash that you can pay your bills for the next like month and a half. That's really it. When it comes to the larger emergency fund, I wouldn't mess around with the high yield savings account. I would use an account called the Betterment Safety Net. So the Betterment Safety Net, it's actually a taxable brokerage account, which I know might scare some of you, but it's invested in 70% bonds and 30% stocks. So it's risky enough to make money, but it's not risky enough to keep you up at night, right? Like your actual risk exposure is relatively very low. So when I first started my personal finance journey, how much should I be saving every month was my most intensely burning question. It turns out what I should have been asking was how much should I aim to save? So knowing when to stop, pivot, and focus on more aggressive investing is key. So what's the answer? How much should I try to have in an emergency fund? People will tell you it's three to six months of expenses. I would recommend, assuming you're childless and a renter, i.e. you don't have any dependents and you don't own a home that could have a roof leak that costs 10 grand to fix, I would recommend shooting for like 12 to 15,000 in the safety net account. Or rather, you could have maybe 5,000 of it in just regular savings and then 10,000 of it in the safety net account. So if you want to get super specific and understand exactly how much for your income, I would pick up a wealth planner. I'll link it in the show notes and it'll basically take your income and your situation into account and then provide recommendations for you based on your numbers. But 12 to 15,000 total is a pretty good cushion in my opinion. I've never really seen anyone need more than that. So once you've mastered your cash flow, you can keep less in an emergency fund and invest it more aggressively. That just means that once you know for sure that you have a handle on your spending and your income, you don't need to have as big of a cushion because you're less likely to have a quote unquote emergency. So for example, if right now you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants and you don't really know how much you're going to have left over at the end of every month, you don't really have a savings plan, then yeah, you probably want to have a few thousand in the bank because if something goes wrong, you have no guarantee that you're going to have that money available to you otherwise. However, if you know for sure that you make 5000 a month and you spend 2500 
you have a built-in emergency fund every month because you have $2,500 that you're just saving anyway. And by saving, I mean investing because remember, the key is to move on to investing as soon as you hit that balance in your emergency fund. You don't want to be too cash heavy. So I get it. I know it's hard to save money, especially hard when you're not saving for any particular reason. But let me tell you, this is the most difficult yet most impactful hurdle in your entire financial journey. Once you prove to yourself that you're able to save an emergency fund, I promise you, you will get hooked on investing because you'll see that your money is making money for you. And there's literally nothing more addictive than that. Okay, let's move on. Number three. This is something that I really think is actually probably the loudest recommendation of the bunch, but it's probably the least tactical, which is why I think it tends to go in one ear and out the other. But you can shave decades of working years off of your retirement timeline by investing often and early. And in the year 2021, there is no excuse not to. There are services like Betterment or RoboAdvisor that you can just make cash contributions to an investment account as if it is a savings account. And that algorithm that manages it will invest the money for you. So if there's only one thing that you take away from this episode, it's sign up for Betterment, start contributing cash. You don't have to know anything about investing to have a really diversified, strong portfolio that'll make money for you. Investing is how I have, you know, grown my net worth to almost $400,000 in a little over four years by the age of 26, and I'm on track to hit a million by 30. Compound interest is your best friend, your best friend. There are two different types of investment accounts broadly that we're going to talk about on this podcast and on my website, moneywithkatie.com. Tax-advantaged accounts and regular taxable accounts, okay? So you can kind of think about putting all investing education that you pick up into those two big buckets, tax-advantaged and taxable. So when it comes to retirement accounts, I do a mix of traditional and Roth for diversification, But I almost always recommend using the traditional 401k instead of the Roth if you're in the 22-24% bracket or higher. I'm going to do a full deep dive episode on why I prefer traditional and why I think it's mathematically superior. But okay, so imagine you're looking at those two columns, tax-advantaged and taxable. Under the tax-advantaged column, put traditional and Roth, okay? Those are the two tax distinctions that you get to choose from in your tax-advantaged column. So kind of keep that in mind for later. So in that tax-advantaged column, you've got things like 401ks, 403bs, 457s, 401as, IRAs. It's like alphabet soup, I know. But anything that has a crazy name like that is nine times out of ten going to be tax-advantaged. And then the taxable side is really easy. It's all the same. It's just one thing. It's just taxable brokerage account. That is, if you went and opened an account in Robinhood and started buying stocks, it would be a taxable brokerage account. That's technically what it is. 
So for those of you that are like, but Katie, I don't want to contribute to an IRA or a 401k because I can't touch that money until I'm old and I don't want to tie it up there. Not so. You actually can get money out of a 401k before age 59 and a half without the 10% penalty by using something called a Roth IRA conversion ladder. And if you think you're out of luck because you're self-employed and you don't have an employer 401k, you're not. You can get a solo 401k or a SEP IRA and you're going to be just as well off. So I'll link articles about those particular accounts in the show notes, especially the Roth IRA conversion ladder. But all I want you to do right now is to take away the idea that this is just a really tax efficient way to invest that's going to earn you hundreds of thousands of dollars more over your investing timeline. It's like the difference between pouring water into a bucket that has holes in the bottom and one that doesn't. The taxable accounts can be used really efficiently, but at the end of the day, because your dividends are going to be taxed every year in those accounts, it is like you have some holes in the bottom of that bucket. So it makes sense to fill up our tax-advantaged accounts first and just know that you can sleep at night because I'm going to show you a way to get the money out early. Remember, I'm trying to retire early, so I would not be putting money into an account that I literally could not touch until I'm 60 years old because I'm probably going to need it well before then. I am really, really passionate about early retirement, if you couldn't tell, but you don't have to want to retire early to benefit from tax optimization. Okay, let's go number four living beneath your means. This will enable you to do steps one through three a whole hell of a lot faster than if you're living barely within your means or God forbid above them. So whether you make $50,000 a year or $150,000, one of the most powerful things that you can do for your future self is to live beneath your means. And speaking of income, we should put this out here right now. Spending less matters more than earning more when you are starting out. That's because getting into the habit of living beneath your means and not inflating your lifestyle with every single raise you get is potentially one of the most impactful things that you're going to do. So no matter how much you're earning right now, Getting accustomed to living beneath your means is going to help you potentially more than just about anything else that you do. Like I said, it'll enable you to do steps one through three, you know, debt payoff and investing aggressively and saving your emergency fund. Anything that you're trying to do is going to be supercharged if you can live beneath your means. I always say people that make a lot more money than they spend, A, that doesn't really necessitate that you have a super high income it just necessitates that you're spending a fair amount less than you're earning those people are the freest ones out there i have acquaintances that are literally multi-millionaires and make hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of dollars per year but their lifestyles are so expensive now that they have to keep earning that much in order to maintain their lives That's why living beneath your means is one of the most freeing things that you can do. And I get it. I know it's not sexy at all. 
to think about living beneath your means, especially when you look around and it's far more likely that most of the people you see are living above their means. Those are the $30,000 millionaires, as I call them. But these are the people who live at home, make $2,000 a month, and drive a Mercedes with car payments that eat up half their income. That's the danger with the word afford. It suggests that you could pay for it. It doesn't mean you should. It means you're paying to present an image of yourself to the world that doesn't actually reflect who or where you are financially. So why not actually become that person first instead of stealing that reality from your future self by faking it now? Before I realized how much further my money could go, I spent almost every dollar I made simply because I didn't know that I shouldn't be. This has become like a classic story on my site, but when I got my first job offer, I literally drove to Louis Vuitton the same day and bought a $1,200 handbag. I don't even think I was getting $1,200 on a single paycheck back then. But I have come a long way. In my highest earning month this year, between my full-time job and this business, I made nearly $30,000 in a single month. And I don't think I spent more than $3,000 and invested the rest. So if you would have told me two years ago that I'd have a month where I would have $30,000 in income, I literally would have laughed in your face. But As soon as you have that perspective shift where you realize how much further your money will go if it's invested and how much of your life it can buy back, you no longer feel tempted by materialism. So I'm going to actually link an article in the show notes about this because I feel like this is a huge issue for people that have like spendy tendencies like I used to. I think there are a few particular blog posts that might help you. The first is a case for why nice stuff actually might be making your life worse. Just a little perspective shift about how sometimes luxury can actually be inconvenient. The top three spending mistakes that I see most often. And then honestly, just how to figure out how much your life costs, which I would consider to be step number one in your personal finance journey. And with that, we are already at number five. So number five actually references something that last week's episode was about, and that's that credit cards can actually be a very powerful way to travel the world for free. So I think a lot of millennials are scared of credit cards because we watched the generation before us royally fuck up their financial lives by abusing debt. So to some degree, I totally understand, but Credit cards, to me, are a genius way to cheat the system. As long as you don't allow the credit card companies to make any money on you, so like AKA do not spend more than you can pay off and don't pay any interest, you can rob these banks of thousands of dollars worth of free travel. So if debt payoff is personal finance 101, emergency funds are 202, and investing is 303, credit card hacking is like 505. Living beneath your means is the attitude with which you should approach all of these classes, so to speak. So you wouldn't take a graduate level course before passing 101, right? So focus your attention on credit card hacking after you feel like you've got the rest of this safely tucked away in your Gucci fanny pack. See, that was a test. No more Gucci fanny packs for us ladies, unless they are from Chinatown and paid for with expired CVS coupons. I have put a lot of time into the exhaustive travel guides on my site, as well as the podcast episode that went live last week. 
Because I wanted someone, when I started doing this, to boil it down for me in a way that was not totally insane. The first guide I ever found involved getting over 20 cards, and that just felt way over the fucking top to me. So this guide really provides a solid middle ground, that 80-20 option. So I will link that episode in the show notes of this one. All right, so to summarize, I'm really glad that you're taking an interest in your personal financial health. And I think if you take these ideas seriously and actually implement them in your life, you're going to look back on this time as the time in which everything began to change. So you should have enough from the articles linked in the show notes to last you through the next global pandemic. But I do post two new articles every week on Mondays and Wednesdays and a new podcast episode every Wednesday from here on out. So I would love to hear from you if there's anything else that you want to see that I'm neglecting, but I really do think that those are the top five basics for beginners. Thank you for being here. I'm excited to get rich with you. See you next week.